Hello and welcome. My name is Ryan, the lead pastor at New Hope Church, and I am so glad that wherever you may be right now, whether you're listening live here today or maybe watching later on, that you are with us as we take some time in our continuing journey through the book of Revelation. Uh, today we are going to be in Revelation chapter 20, and so if you have your Bible, please grab that, uh, whether it's a paper version that you use or maybe on your phone or tablet, you can pull up a digital version. But Revelation chapter 20 is where we're going to be. Now here at New Hope Church, we have been working our way through this sermon series called The End, going verse by verse through the entire book of Revelation. And on Sunday, just a few days ago, we covered chapter 19. Next Sunday, we are wrapping up the book, chapters 21 and 22. It's been quite a journey. And on our website, church website, newhopeadel.org, you can go there and view any past messages or listen on the podcast version of that. Or, of course, on Facebook, you can do the same. But the question you may be asking is, why, why aren't we doing Revelation chapter 20 on Sunday. And the reason for that is that this chapter is, is pretty important. And I felt like it, it, it warranted time, extra time, to, to pause and to dig a little deeper into this chapter, especially as it may raise some questions or questions you've had in the past, and to address those. And so we're going to slow down, jump through that today of Revelation chapter 20, and I hope that you enjoy uh, our time together. So I would encourage you again, grab your Bible, uh, maybe grab a cup of coffee if you're watching in the morning or decaf in the evening. And uh, let's begin our journey this morning through Revelation 20. I would mention that uh, the, the approach today is really more of a Bible study than maybe a traditional sermon. And I'm going to be giving a lot at you and a lot of extra verses. And so I would encourage you, even as we're going through, feel free to press pause uh, and look up those verses. Jump over to different places where I'll direct you and then come back to Revelation 20, unpause, and then we'll keep moving forward uh, together. So again, thank you for being with us today. In Revelation chapter 20, the big idea that we're introduced to is something called the millennium. Millennium literally means thousand years. And the idea here is that the, the millennium refers to the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. Now, before we unpack this in detail, I think it's important to highlight that Christians historically have not all agreed on what the millennium is. And, and that's okay. And the reason I say it's okay is because what we're talking about today is something that I would call and consider a secondary issue. Here at New Hope, we use and we talk about things that are open-handed topics uh, these are things that are, are beliefs or doctrines that we hold, but we hold them open-handed, meaning uh, we don't all have to agree in order to, to be in fellowship and to be a church community. But in contrast, there are a handful of, of doctrines and beliefs that we would call closed-fisted or primary issues, and these are things that we don't negotiate. These are places where we stand and, uh, with conviction in terms of holding them to be true. The millennium is an important topic, but it's an open-handed topic. And this, again, echoes that Christians throughout the church age have not all agreed on this. Like, for example, um, the question is, the first question that can come up is, well, when does the millennium take place? Now, there's different ideas about this. Let me start by giving you my perspective. And it's just a view. It's just the view that I hold. I hold that the millennium is a real, it will be a real historical, meaning in time, event that will take place. 
It is something that will take place here on earth that is very, very real, that is yet future, that we'll look forward to. Now, regarding when it will happen, I've just sort of alluded to one view that I'll introduce first. It's the one that I hold, and that's the view called premillennialism. And this is the view that holds is that Jesus will return before, that's the white pre, before the millennium happens. So we'll go through a seven-year tribulation period. Then we'll have the return of Jesus, which is talked about in chapter 19, which we covered here at New Hope Church last Sunday. And then in chapter 20, we move into this thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. Jesus comes before the millennium. Now, there's another view that's called post-millennium. And this is the idea that Jesus will return after the thousand-year reign here. I'll add that this view is not as widely embraced by Christians, but nonetheless, it is a perspective. There's another view held by the church, and that is a view called awe millennialism. Awe means no or not. And this is the view that holds that the millennium is uh, not a historical or will not be a historical real life event, or holds that the millennium is more symbolic than actual literal in terms of Jesus coming and reigning, reigning here on earth. That's another view that's held by Christians. And then there's the panmillennialism, and that's the one that you just throw your hands up in the air and say, well, it's just, it's all going to work out or it's all going to pan out in the end. So nonetheless, there's these different views, and I was actually joking about the pan. Don't look that one up. That's not a thing. But nonetheless, you have these different perspectives for when the millennium is going to take place. Now, maybe you're asking yourself this question. Hold on back the bus up. What you're telling me is that in the end, Jesus, he's going to come back and all these events that were quite remarkable that we read about in chapter 19 of Revelation, and that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom here on earth, and he's going to literally be here and reign on earth, this earth, for a thousand years. And the answer is yes. Well, yes and no. The no part is because his kingdom is already here. His kingdom is already, Matthew talks about forcefully advancing. His kingdom is very real, and it is already working and transforming lives, and, and, and the church is a part of the kingdom work that is present here today. So it's not that he's coming to set up his kingdom. His kingdom already is. But when the millennium happens, Jesus will come, and he will give a full expression, obviously a very visible and very open expression of the kingdom and kingdom values that are already already here, but it will be pervasive around the world as Jesus rules and reigns out of Jerusalem. And so that's what we talk about with the millennium. Now, why does Jesus need to do this? Why is the millennium even a thing? Well, the answer to that question is because there are promises from God in Scripture that still need to be fulfilled, and the millennium is how those promises are fulfilled. And so because God always keeps his word, because, because the promises that he's made uh, to his people is real and we count on those and God can't just forget a promise or skip over a promise or not keep his word, he will fulfill all these promises that the millennium will cover here. So for example, I, I want to encourage you, check out Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 and Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. And again, you can push pause and look at those or look at those later on. 
this is these verses talk about in the Old Testament the millennium time when Jesus will reign as king over Israel and all the nations of the world. So this is another prophetic passage from the Old Testament that talks about this. Also, look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. Because in this passage, you have uh, what's prophesied here about the, how the world is going to live in peace, global peace under the leadership uh, of Jesus reigning and ruling here on earth. And then we also uh, will see Satan will be bound for these thousand years and will have no access to people during the thousand year reign. It's going to be a very unique and special time as Jesus reigns from there. So let's go back to the promises. What kind of promises? Give me some examples maybe you're thinking of what promises will God fulfill during this thousand year reign of the millennium? I'm glad you asked. Thanks for asking. Here are some of those promises. I want to give you just a few examples. First, we have in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, talks about the land covenant. Now, what is that? Well, the land covenant, covenant, excuse me, is the covenant promise that God makes or made, excuse me, to Abraham to give him and his descendants. Well, the promised land or a plot of land that was for him and his descendants or Israel. Now, this plot of land is very specifically described. You can go to Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, that gives a picture of the boundaries of this area. Now, here's what's important to note. Israel, neither Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the descendants, or even to this day, Israel has never occupied this full expression of the whole land boundary. They've had parts and pieces of it, but they've never had all of it. And yet all of it is promised to Israel as this promised land. In addition, if you look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, what we see there is the Lord promised Abraham that his descendants would have this land forever. And so that also hasn't happened, especially as we know from history, the Jewish people have been displaced for a good portion of their history. They haven't even been there. So there are some unfulfilled promises here regarding the land that will be fulfilled when the millennium comes. Here's a second example, the Davidic covenant. This is something you can look up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here in this covenant promise, God to David, King David, promised David that his royal line would never end, that it would endure forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, let me just read that. The promise from God to David, this was a covenant promise. And what that means is God says, I'm going to do it in spite of you, David. This is something he's committing to as a covenant. He said, your house, this is to David now, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne. That's the covenant promise. But if you look at history, you had King David, and after David died, you had his son Solomon take the throne, and then after Solomon, his son take the throne, and at that point, the Davidic line was actually interrupted. The line, in terms of ruling on the throne there of Judah in Jerusalem, it paused or it was interrupted. But this promise will be fulfilled in 
And Jesus is, and we know this from Matthew and Luke and the genealogies given, Jesus is in the line of David, a descendant, if you will, of David. And so Jesus, in the return, when he comes back and sets up his millennial kingdom, he will, he will resume the Davidic line and he will fulfill the Now, so far, I've given you examples of covenant promises to Israel, but there are actually other promises. Let me give you a couple of examples here that are not necessarily connected with Israel. Psalm 110. In this psalm, we see the Lord promises Jesus that he will make his enemies a footstool and that Jesus' followers will worship him freely. Many hold that this would be an example of a covenant promise to the Son, to Jesus, that will be fulfilled. One more example before we move on. Daniel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. In this important passage here, we see that the Lord promised the nations of the world that they would live in peace with Jesus as their ruler. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Again, that will be fulfilled during the thousand-year reign. The Lord always keeps his promises. And we have in the Old Testament these unfulfilled promises that the millennial time period of a thousand years that he will fulfill what he has already promised, both to Israel, to the Son, and to the nations of the world. And so with that introduction, we're ready now to jump into Revelation chapter 20. So hopefully you're there with your own Bible and ready to jump in in verse 1 as we make our way through this passage. Here's how it begins. It says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss. Now, real quick, the abyss literally means a deep hole. And what this is, is a prison for evil spirits, demons, etc. That's what we're talking about with the abyss. So having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, that's 1,000 years. This is the length of the millennial time period. As I alluded to earlier, Satan will be bound, tossed into the abyss, and chained there, and kept for those 1,000 years of the millennium. Satan will not have access to people. He will not be tempting. He will not be deceiving. He will not be uh, any of those types of things. And so he is put away there in the abyss. It says, He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. So this is one character trait then of the millennium. Continuing on, it says, After that, meaning after the thousand years are done, he, Satan, must be set free for a short time. Verse 4, and I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Now, frankly, we don't know, scholars don't know who these, this is, this, these people on the thrones, uh, if they're even people that are given authority to judge. But nonetheless, we see John sees these thrones on which are seated those who have been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been, who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. These are people now that were, these are believers that are killed during the tribulation time period. Interesting, it notes how they were killed. We have this sort of common theme. This is not the only place that it mentions this, that, that, that believers, they'll probably be killed in a variety of ways, and just being practical, but beheading is probably the state-sponsored, government-sponsored way to get rid of those who profess belief 
faith and obedience to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It continues on. It says that these people, they had not worshipped the beast, that's the Antichrist, or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. So these people killed in the tribulation. You have this resurrection event and they will reign with Jesus during the thousand year millennium. It says this, the rest of the dead, now this is referring to unsaved people now, those who reject Jesus, they did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death, now the second death, this refers to what's called the lake of fire. More on that in just a moment. The second death has no power over them. Why? Because as believers, they will not be a part of this. They will not be going to the lake of fire. They will not be in part of the great white throne judgment that we'll get to and explain in just a moment. So it has no power over them because it's not, it doesn't apply to them. So the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, there's a lot there. So here, here's what I want to do though. I want to just step back for a second and highlight that the Bible does not teach that when it comes to resurrection, that there's just sort of one big global resurrection of all people at the end. That's not how it works. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are several resurrections, at least four specifically. I want to briefly share those with you because that'll help us understand fully a passage like what we just read. The first resurrection, and in the way I'm framing it, I know it's a little confusing because it's going to be different than what Scripture just called the first resurrection here. I'm not discounting Scripture. I'm just for my own purposes, chronologically, I'm laying out these, these resurrections. The first resurrection I want to talk about today, though, and the first one we see in history, is actually the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus from the empty tomb that we talk about, and we celebrated Easter. Here in a matter of less than two weeks, we will be coming together, not just New Hope Church, but churches around the world, celebrating, remember, the cross of Jesus, where he died for our sins, but then was laid in the tomb, and three days later, what happened? He resurrected from the dead. Now, I want to highlight, because if you're thinking to yourself, well, surely he's not the first one to resurrect. What about Lazarus? Lazarus' resurrection was a restoration back into his old body. But Jesus' resurrection is qualitatively different, because Jesus' resurrection is to his new resurrected body. He is the first to have a resurrection body. He is the first to experience this type of resurrection. And so we recognize that Jesus is the forerunner, if you will, to the resurrections that he will accomplish throughout time. So Jesus is the first resurrection. The second resurrection is the resurrection of the church. The church started at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down and begins to uh, indwell uh, the believers of that time, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you have this movement of the church that launches in Acts chapter 2. The church begins there. The church will end at the rapture event, whether it happens at the beginning of the tribulation, midway through, pre-wrath, or post-trib. I'm not concerned about that now, but whatever it is, the rapture event is the end of the church age. Those are the boundary lines for the church, capital C church, global church, and what I'm talking about there. The rapture of the church is 
the bodily resurrection of these believers. Because the rapture is not just the rapture of our soul or spirit. It's a bodily resurrection. It is a bodily snatching up of the church to be with the Lord as he ascends into the clouds. We meet him there and so we'll be with him forever. This is the resurrection. And as we've been studying, when this rapture event happens, we know what takes place next is called the Bema judgment. This is, it sounds, I know judgment's a harsh word, but Bema judgment is a wonderful thing. You want to be here. This is where, where you, you are uh, rewarded for work. This is where you hear from Jesus. And I hope you long to hear these words, good and faithful servant. This is uh, even Mercy Me in the song I Can Only Imagine, which is known globally around the world. That song is about that moment, that Bema seat moment of judgment for the believers, for the church. And so the church will the Lamb, and there'll be the return of the church with Jesus at the end of the tribulation. But that's the second re- uh, resurrection. The third resurrection is the tribulation believers, which is what we just read about in this passage here. You see, when Jesus returns, there will be this third resurrection, which is referring to what we just read in chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. It will be a resurrection of all the people who trusted in Jesus during the tribulation, but who were killed for their believers in the tribulation. Many will come to faith in Christ. God will continue to work and pursue people and many will turn and trust in Jesus and will not take the mark of the Antichrist. They will not worship his image and they will pay a price for that. When Jesus returns, and what's referring to here in uh, Revelation 20, you have a resurrection now of these tribulation uh, believers. Also, many hold that Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, talks about that this is also the event where those who are Followers of God who who have trusted in grace and, and, and believed in the Lord pre-church. So we're talking about Old Testament believers all the way up through even John the Baptist. That this is the time that those people are also resurrected at this moment. So this is an important resurrection. The fourth and final resurrection that Bible talks about, at least it clearly talks about, is the resurrection of all the unbelievers. Now, what I noticed, I want you to notice here that all the unbelievers from the beginning of humanity all the way through the tribulation time, that it's one gigantic resurrection for all of those people, all of those people. And this will take place after the millennium is over. Read with me in chapter seven, or excuse me, chapter 20, verse 7 of Revelation. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. This is the abyss. And he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. By the way, this this is just incredible. So you have Jesus literally reigning on earth. You have Jesus who will rule with an iron scepter. This time that is marked by global peace, prosperity, the fruit of the Spirit, I mean, all, all these things going on that are markers of this millennial time period. But when the thousand years are over, Satan is released, people will once again be deceived and will begin to follow the evil one, even though Jesus is literally on earth. This speaks to the heart of people and the sin nature that we carry and this, this propensity we have to be deceived and to follow after things that are unholy. 
This will happen again as Satan is relieved. Really, excuse me, people will once again follow the evil one, be deceived, and they will turn away in rebellion. Look with me now at verse uh, 9. It says, They marched across the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Once again, Satan and this new rebellious group of people, this army, will descend on Jerusalem. This is sort of a repetition of of chapter 19 when Jesus came back. But this one ends very differently. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown back in chapter 19. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Wow. As we begin to wrap up this chapter now, what we pivot to in the last part is we pivot to this final resurrection. The final resurrection of all the unbelievers, all the people who throughout history, for one reason or another, turned their back on God, that in their own sin nature went their own way, who put you know, the fist to God and turned away from him in obedience, who though God pursued people, all people throughout history, they rejected him in every way. This event, this resurrection event that then will usher into what's called the great white throne judgment is probably one of the most tragic, it probably is the most tragic event in biblical history and, and in human history. This is, you don't want to be here. Anybody that we know and love, we don't want them to be here. This is a great place of pain and regret. This is a place of true judgment. That when the millennium is over and all things are done, so to speak, that the, the, the judgment of Satan will take place and any person, which we just read about, and any person who will be at this judgment, they will be there because of their free will choice to be in rebellion to God. But I want us to see something. That as we look at this last, this last handful of verses here, their judgment will be based not only on their position of rejection of Jesus, rejection of the Lord, but also because of their works. And the reason that's important is because there's nobody at this judgment who will ever say, God, you got it wrong. Or God, that's not quite right. Or I'm just a good person or fill in the blank, whatever it is. There will be no room for anybody to stand at this judgment in defiance of God's evaluation and his righteous judgment of people in this situation. Look with me at verse 11. We read through this really with a heavy heart. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it. The him refers to Jesus. He will be the judge. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So the people are standing alone before Jesus. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Now, this books are a recording of all the actions, thoughts, motives, deeds, words, etc., of all the people standing there. Please hear this today. It is one of the greatest lies of the evil one that you can sin or I can sin and get away with it. That is not true. Neither in this world, sin always either comes before you or catches up with you. 
But not only now, but it's also true to come. God sees all. He knows all. And it is recording and recorded. And we will give an account. A person will give an account of what they have done. And that's true for the believer and the unbeliever. How you and I live today absolutely does matter. The Lord sees it all. The Lord knows it all. He records it all. Let's continue on. It says another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life now records people, those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They are then recorded into the Lamb's book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades, Hades is another descriptor word for hell. Death and Hades or hell gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades or hell were all thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, this is painful to read. and this This is a heavy and hard passage. But it's true. It's, it's real. And it's something that we need to, as the church, as individuals, or anybody here who's listening, pay attention to. I want to show one observation, though, as we begin to wrap up this, this morning or evening or whenever you're listening. And it's this idea. I want you to notice that hell is temporary. Hell is a temporary place that those who are unbelievers go waiting for judgment at the great white throne judgment. But the time will come when all people and hell itself will all be thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the final location for the unbelievers. This is the final spot where they go. Now, frankly, there's a lot that we could say about hell. There's a lot we could say about the lake of fire that for the sake of time, we don't have time today to, to unpack into more detail. Someday we will do that. But uh, let me throw out a thought, though, as again, as we close. And, and maybe it's not so much a thought as much as a, a protest. Because in my 20-plus years of pastoring, one of the things that I've heard probably more than anything else when it comes to this topic is a protest. And the protest goes something like this. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. And what I mean by that is eternity in the lake of fire doesn't fit the crime of sin. Our sin, your sin, mine. It doesn't fit the crime of unpaid or covered sin. It's like, I mean, yeah, sin is not good. We should choose not to sin, but eternity is a very long time, and that's very true. And descriptors of the lake of fire are incredibly unpleasant, and that's true. Frankly, they're unpleasant because God is not there. But here's the thing. The problem oftentimes, and this can happen in the church or even outside the church, but the problem oftentimes is that we have much too small a view about how bad sin is. You know, we we sort of have this elevated view of how bad the lake of fire is. And I get that, and I'm not trying to dismiss that. But we have this small view about how bad sin is. But I want to tell you and remind us all this today, 
sin first and most is against a holy God. It's against him. Sin is an incredibly big deal. And if you ever, any of us, me, you, any of us have a picture ever that sin is just, yeah, I mean, it's an oopsie. It's I made a mistake. It's a power fill in the blank kind of picture we have of sin. I want you to replace that picture with a picture of the crucifixion event of Jesus. See, your sin and my sin is so big of a deal because it ruins and blocks relationship with the Lord, our maker, that the son of God had to leave the throne of heaven to come into this world to live a sinless, perfect life and then to go to the cross to pay the sin penalty to solve our sin problem. The picture of Jesus on the cross should give us an idea of how big a deal sin is. It ruins lives. It ruins relationships. It ruins destiny. And what I mean by that is it ruins God's plan and calling on the lives of people and the ways he wants to use you to make an eternal impact on the lives of people. And those are just effects in this world in terms of this how sin plays out in all of our lives. But more than even that, sin breaks relationship with God. Sin breaks the heart of God. Sin is a very, very big deal. And that's why when we look at a passage like this, let us never walk away with sin is no big deal. And let us never walk away with a picture, though as unpleasant as it may be, that hell or the lake of fire is completely out of bounds. The church today is moving away from this unpleasant doctrine. But let me throw out this as an idea for you just to weigh on and consider, because I'll be very honest with you. I am not super comfortable with the idea of hell or the lake of fire. But here's where I land, and here's how I work through this. For so many reasons, both in my own life and when I look at the whole totality of Scripture, I am absolutely stake my life on it convinced that God is good, that God is loving, He is just and righteous in person, character, and nature that this is who God is. And I stake my conviction and my life on this, including for the parts of the Bible that I may not like as much. While I read a passage like this, and there's nothing about the lake of fire or hell that I find pleasant, but I know God is good loving, righteous, and just. And so I can trust him that an event like that doesn't take place apart from God's character, nature, and person. That even in something like this, it is displaying the beautiful and holy character of who God is. And so I come to a place of surrender and say, even though I don't like this doctrine, I trust you with it. Just like I trust you with my own life, and my eternal destiny. And I hope that's something as you consider as well uh, with it comes to a topic like this. So let me close today. And again, thank you for being with me today in this study of Revelation 20. Just two questions for you to ponder. The first one is what have you done with Jesus? He wants to do a lot with you. He wants to to work in your life to help you uh, become more like him. That's called sanctification help you become more Jesus-like in your attitudes and behaviors, 
your words, your thoughts. He wants to work through your life to make a difference in the lives of others. Another lie of Satan is that you're too broken, you're too messed up, you're too this or too that to be used by God. That is a lie. God works to the willing before he works through the talented or gifted. He wants to use your life. He wants to work through your life. What have you done with Jesus? A passage like this in Revelation 20 is that reminder that everything we do, we will give an account for. Look up on your own, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 10, I believe it is. And it talks about the believer's vain judgment. Even there, we will give an account before God, though we are saved and as the bride of Christ, that is solid and fixed. We will still give an accounting as believers of our life for the things that we did, whether good or worthless. Believer or unbeliever, you will give an accounting someday. What have you done with Jesus? And my second question as we close here today is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you today made that decision yet to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And you may sit here today and say, well, I just don't know everything of what that even means. And that's fair. But if you have not made this decision, I'm pleading with you, would you please engage? And when I say engage, shoot me an email. Let's begin a conversation. Let's just start there. My email is ryan at newhopeadel.org. It would be a privilege to, to have a conversation with you about what it looks like and what it means to have a personal, abiding, saving, life-transforming, eternity-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you to engage. Please, this is, this is Scripture, this is true, and this is something that the church, we need to take seriously, as well as those in our community and families and the people that we love as we stand on and we proclaim Scripture in its totality. So again, thank you for joining me today as we went through this study in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, before you go, can I just pray? Pray over blessing over you and, and pray as we close. Let's do that together. Father, thank you so much for the time together uh, and my friends that are listening or watching online, whether it's live right now or whether it's at a later time this week or into the future. And Father, I want to pray that this passage, though there's parts of it that are very difficult, I pray that it would spur us on towards love and good deeds. I pray that it would be a passage that for, that for all of us, that we would, we would take seriously the ways we choose to live our lives, that there would be places, or if there are places, that anybody who's listening today, that you are stuck in a pattern of sin, that you're stuck in a place that, that is, is wrecking and ruining your life and your, the relationships in your life, that, Father, there would be a repentance, there would be a, a coming out of that, and that we would, everybody would experience freedom from those sins. And I pray, too, for anybody listening or watching today or whenever you're watching, that if you have not made a decision for Christ, Father, I pray that those people would, would reach out and begin a conversation. So, Father, we just entrust ourselves to you. We thank you that you are good and loving, that you are faithful, that you are holy, that you are righteous, that you are just, and that we can trust our entire lives to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thank you again for joining. Uh, you're invited to come back here at New Hope Church, whether online or we'd love to have you on campus this coming Sunday, which is uh, April uh, the 10th. 
We have a service at 9 and 10.30, and we'd love to have you join us as we wrap up the book of Revelation. And what we're going to do in this last sermon on this topic is we're going to give a, uh, a, just a tour, an open house tour of what heaven is like. You're going to be blown away by this passage. I think you'll be blessed by it. In addition, we've got a kids concert going on where the kids are going to be leading us in worship. It's going to be a fantastic morning. Please plan to join us. Uh, we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you, and God bless.